Welcome to Beading Together, a way of being together while you bead, cook, or garden. We're here to keep you company while you get into flow. So slip into those earphones or turn up the speakers and join us at the virtual kitchen table where we will talk about life from birthing to the end and all things between. We're recording today from Chilquayak, or so-called Chilliwack. Now, Chilquayak is a word that means going back upstream as far as you can go in a canoe. This is the unceded traditional territory of the Stalo people, and we're grateful to them as the original caretakers of this beautiful land. I'm Lisa Shepard. I'm known as a Métis beading artist, but just like you, I'm many layered. I'm also a mum, a wife, a Métis, an Italian, a person who loves dark chocolate and brown lentils equally. In my heart, though, is a deep feeling of the responsibility I carry for future generations. Hello, I'm Yonina Curtin. I'm a Métis Icelandic poet, a mother and grandmother. As a story weaver, making my way in the world of words, I have used narrative poetry to document my journey as I researched my Métis ancestors. It is my deepest hope to preserve some of not only my family's history, but also the stories of the Métis for the coming generations. Now, before we begin, I just want to say that we say women to describe people who are birthing, but we also want to acknowledge that gender non-conforming folks also birth and please know that we're constantly learning and just wanting to make this podcast feel as safe as possible. Today, we will begin at the beginning, where we all begin, within our mother's womb, the journey down the birth canal and into the world. When doing research for this podcast, I found a quote from my friend Nene Jordan, who speaks of the tree as a great metaphor for the placenta in her anthology, Placenta Wit, Mother's Stories, Rituals and Research. Her quote says, the placenta with its circular mass of vascular networks resembles tree roots interlacing as they extend into the nourishing soil of the earth. The umbilical cord is like a long tree trunk that grows up from these roots. Babies are the fruits and flowers on this human tree of life. Such a lovely image, babies as the fruits and flowers, life budding within our wombs. <sighs> Yonina, that is beautiful and what a wonderful way to begin now I know you're a mom what was that like becoming a mom like I, I don't know what year that was but tell me a little bit about your experience well it was 1991 and I was almost 37 when I had my son so I was an older mother and I'd given a lot of thought to the birthing process because I had been through a practice called rebirthing where you go back to your own birth with a practitioner that's skilled and they actually put you in water sometimes. So you're in water so you can have that feeling of being in the womb. It's a way to connect back with your mother and then also your own birthing process. So I had really been looking at a lot about birth and birthing and how it was. And I wanted my son to have a water birth. Mm. That wasn't how <laughs> it went for me. <laughs> well, we have that in common then because uh, before I gave, I've just got one child and um, I also wanted a water birth and in I mean you've seen my beadwork that I do it's detailed work so how would you think I would do a birth plan it was it was planned down to the finest detail you know it was going to be a home birth it was going to be a water birth you know it was going to have this music and not that music and I mean everything was really planned and then it taught me 
that sometimes things just don't go the way that they're planned. And I just had to be, uh, you know, open and ready for things to change. So what started out as a as a home birth ended up a hospital cesarean, um, you know, and it was I feel like it was my first big lesson in how like kids bring you everything that you want and and things that you haven't planned for and it's just but you know the thing that made everything okay is I had the most amazing group of women around me during this I had actually invited um, a dear friend of mine who's a few years younger than me to the birth if she wanted to be and she chose to be um, because I wanted her to have the opportunity to witness a human birth before she was at that place in life. And then I also had midwives that were there. So I had three midwives that kind of took turns um, being there with me. My partner was also there with me. But I as I think back to that time, he kind of had like a a, a worried and and stunned expression on his face. (laughs) You know, bless him. You know, he was there for all the right reasons. But those midwives that were there um, really helped me to feel at the end of at the end of things that this was exactly the way it was supposed to be, you know, and it was all good. And I had this beautiful baby and, you know, and it, everything was good. It's pretty wonderful. I had a 36 hour labor, so I should have Mine probably had a cesarean. Mine was 36 as well. You too? Yeah. Wow. That's a very long time it to is. not eat. So I was quite hungry when I was finished and I had a number of women around me, including an astrologer who has kept whispering in my ear, he has to come soon. He's going to have his moon in cancer. If you don't have him soon, he won't have his moon in cancer. My oh, moon's no pressure. in cancer. She thought that would be good for us. So it was quite funny. I couldn't rush it, but I could not eat after I was done. I was starving. So people fed me with a spoon. They fed me soup. And that was such a caring act yes. uh, to have the women around you to do those things, to see that you couldn't hold the baby. So they yeah. held the baby for me. So he was with me. Uh, it was wonderful. And people commented on the room, the energy in the room. We had a big flowers, a bunch of flowers around and chanting music, which I was listening to all the time. And uh, even while pregnant, because I'd heard that the baby really hears everything. Yes. So I wanted him to feel soothed. And so he had that sound that he entered into. And then that was a sound that I breastfed him to all the time. You know, when I was expecting, I talked to my mom and asked her if she remembers when I was born. And so she went digging through boxes of the photo albums, stuff like that. And she pulled out the hospital brochure that she was given when she went to go and have, have me. And it was the craziest thing to see because on the cover was the most like crudely drawn, like, cartoon image of a of the a new mom lying in a hospital bed cuddling her swaddled baby and all around the bed were all of these people who had come to visit and the dad and they all had cigars in their mouth and they they actually drew the smoke up from the cigars and and circling like yeah. a wreath above mom and baby's head and this was the cover of the of the so I mean we've come a long way right and then on the inside of the of the brochure were things like, you know, um, how, when will I be able to see my baby? And it was, you know, information like, 
when you want to see your baby, you'll call the nurse and then the nurse will bring the baby and you'll have 15 minutes, at which time the nurse will bring the baby back to the nursery where it can be properly <laughs> oh, taken dear. care of by people who know how to take care of a baby. Yeah. And the baby will be fed on a schedule um, formula, which we know is much better for baby than mother's breast milk. <laughs> and, and, and I will just add in here, however people feed their babies is the right way for your baby. But it, it was really it's was it made me laugh to read this and just go like it was so different then yeah so different than where where we are today right I was almost 12 when my brother was born so I remember that birthing and my dad coming home and making us dinner (laughs) and that meant it was something out of a can (laughs) and that it was this big mystery that my mom was at the hospital and then we went to see this baby with this big head of hair but they were in the other room that with all the babies, not with my mom. Mm. So it was a very different experience then mm. for women. Yeah. Yeah. Do you wish that you had more information about birthing before you birthed? Like, do you wish that you had been able to attend births? Oh, I think that would be wonderful right? to know what it was like, because yeah. I was very afraid once mm. it was actually happening. I was quite, I, I have a traumatic history. So then my trauma sort of kicked in. I was feeling very frightened. I was actually running from one corner to the other <laughs> in the Aww. room, kind of like, I could I, st- I felt like, oh, maybe I could change my mind. <laughs> oh, geez. But you're there and the yeah. baby's coming and it comes and it's so worth it. I mean, this is the thing I think that every mother feels is so worth it no matter what your experience is, whether it's yeah. positive or not, long. Some people have their baby within a couple of hours, I've heard. I can't imagine that. Uh, but it's always the gift at the end. That's what really matters. Yeah, I sometimes have trouble preparing a meal in a couple of hours. I can't imagine <laughs> birthing a baby in a couple of hours, right? Apparently, it's not the preferred way because yeah. it's, yeah, your body isn't getting used to things as slowly. And But <laughs> I do wish that I had an opportunity to, to take part in births before I was giving birth. And so I hope that with this first episode being able to listen to some of the some birth stories I think it's just a really nice way to start things I think it is as well and I love that we're beginning at the beginning yes so it's where we all began it's something that we share men women whichever however you identify we've all come from a mother so we've spoken to two women who've recently had babies and a doctor who works with people who are having babies and our first guest is Colette Trudeau So our first guest is my dear friend, Colette Trudeau. I don't even know how many years I've known Colette at this point. It just feels like forever. But I've known her long enough that her little baby calls me auntie. Actually, her little baby calls me Tsitsi, but I know what she means. And I know, Yonina, you've met Colette once before as well. Yes, she was in a class that I was teaching on storytelling. So it's kind of nice that we both know you. Welcome. So Colette. Please introduce yourself. Absolutely. So, Hello, my name is Colette Trudeau. I am Métis on my father's side, and I am Russian and German on my mother's side. Um, my family is originally from Manitoba, the St. Boniface area. That's where my father grew up. And so my, my roots um, go back to the Red River area. And... Uh, the uh, surnames are Vandal and Hamlin, but now I'm a Trudeau, which is, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of a, a, a leadership name, I guess you would say, in Canada <laughs> right now. 
It sure is. And you have taken on a new role in the past while. Uh, well, I am also the proud mother of a little Métis baby named Lily Grace Bailey. And uh, she is just uh, just the most amazing thing that has happened to me. I've, I've, I've been really blessed in my life to have a, a number of really wonderful life experiences, but uh, this is this has definitely been the most interesting and, and dynamic, I would say. And it's been a joy being able to witness some of these, just being on the outside and being able to witness some of this. Colette, when you think back to when you were getting together your birth plan, what did that look like? Well, I think, Lisa, you and I have had this conversation and... So uh, I'll be very open that um, probably leading up to um, the time that I got married, I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to start a family. Um, it was primarily because I was terrified of uh, giving birth. And, <laughs> and uh, but, but something changed in me. And whenever I... I set my mind to do something, I, I, I go all the way. And so when I started, when I found out I was pregnant with my daughter, uh, I really wanted to know everything. And that's how I am just in life. I, I, I yes. always research <laughs> because I want to know so much about what, what I'm about to experience or, or what I'm learning about. And uh, so I wanted to learn about labor and delivery primarily because I wanted to, to deal with my fear. Um, mm -hmm. and I am so thankful. So the, um, BC Association of Friendship Centers actually provides a grant for, um, Indigenous mothers to access to have a doula. And by, um, just through some support from, from different friends, uh, they really encouraged me to, to get a doula, which I am so thankful for because um, the, the support, and we can talk a little bit more about the support as we dig into the conversation, but the support that I was given was incredible. I also knew that I, I wanted to um, work with midwives. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went with a midwifery um, office uh, as part of my planning. And it was just that there was, again, that, that um, additional support uh, that I needed as part of my learning journey, um, yes. preparing for, for birthing my beautiful daughter. And I remember leading up to the time when she was due, you needed that support because some things changed, didn't it? Yes, some things definitely changed. So Lily was born uh, April 21st, 2020. 20. Yeah, yeah, and, we remember. Yes. So um, I was, I would say in February, I was ready to give birth in a hospital. And mm. that's what I had prepared myself for. And with COVID, and the so many questions and the unknown associated with COVID, I started contemplating a home birth right, and a, a water birth. Ooh, yes. I wanted a water birth. And so did I. Wow. That's three of us, three of three. Yeah. So mm -hmm. 
I started to engage my doulas and I engaged my midwives to have the conversation. And I remember this one midwife that I had such a close connection with when I said, I, th I think I'm going to have a home birth. She was like, that is so amazing. Yay. Yes. <laughs> that support. And, yeah. And, and I said, I, I need, I need help getting to this point though, <laughs> because she knew, she knew the journey that I was on. I was very open about it. The, the day her and I had, had met. Yes that I was terrified and I needed, I needed support. Mm -hmm. And so she was, she thought it was really exciting that I had made that decision, but she was also really excited that I had gotten to that point um, where I had overcome my, my fear. Uh, so, uh, you know, through listening to different podcasts and, and, you know, watching different birth stories, it, it really helped and my doula through the entire process just kept telling me to, Colette, you just need to normalize mm. birth. It's something that's happened forever. forever. So you just need to normalize it. So my grandmother so, had 17 children at home. That is, <laughs> you know, that is amazing. That yeah. is so incredible. Like, you know, to, to know that, you know, people, what women, women have done this and they've gotten through it and, and, you know, come out with these beautiful little, little beings. And, yeah, and yeah. Um, so I think it, it was so, it was so critical for me to, to normalize. And you, you said something that's really key. And when I think about your grandmother having 17 children, something that you said, Colette, is that you were afraid that there was that fear. And I always feel like fear is always attached to the unknown. And, you know, like when you have 17 children, like none of it is unknown anymore, you know, and she probably was around other women that had given birth, like she probably wasn't experiencing it for the very first time when it was her very first time. I wish I knew, actually, I wish I had asked her and talked to her about that. Yes. But that woman that I listened to the other day on a podcast with a woman that had given birth eight times, she said every birth was different. Mm -hmm. And so it mm -hmm. makes me think of writing books because I'm a writer. Every book you write is different. And you, we think of giving birth when we write a book <laughs> of course and fear is part of that too so I understand both sides of that yeah, yeah. I remember Colette my heart was just going out to you because you were this incredibly strong woman who was facing fear of like you know first time giving birth but also fear of like this pandemic was just being talked about and you know that was such a scary time when we didn't really know anything about anything with regards to the pandemic and you know here you were making some really big choices well and, and what was really hard is i mean culturally it's so important to be surrounded by community uh, during those times and i lost my 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 family as yeah. being a part of the process you know you always think that um or at least in my case my my mom and i wanted to be together during that time and and to have her support through that and and i didn't i couldn't have it i, I couldn't even after the birth eh? even after even after and so it's you know you you also experience that that loss you grieve the experience that that beautiful experience that you know you think you're going to be surrounded by family which to be completely honest, there are points where I'm very happy family wasn't around. 
<laughs> no, so, uh, you know, when I think about it, when I think about, you know, at the very front end of, of my process and in onboarding midwives and onboarding a doula, I am so thankful that that was the path I went down because I had, I had women who, who surrounded me during my entire process. Yes. And my, my husband was there too. And, and he made sure I was fed and, and I really do appreciate okay. that. Okay. You brought it up. I wasn't going to, but you brought it up. So now I have to say like, how did he do? Uh, you know what? He, he did, he did well. He overall, I would say we had one moment where I, I was very mad at him. <laughs> did you swear at him? <laughs> uh, I I didn't. So I, I'm sorry, Mark. I'm going to tell the story. Oh, but there we go. My husband just, you know, he he felt so terrible. I was probably 15 hours into my labor at home, and my midwives kept coming and. I, I was uh, having experiencing failure to progress. Um, so I wasn't dilating. And so I just, uh, I kept moving through it. We were waiting for, you know, my contractions to start coming more frequently and for me to dilate. And um, my husband had just never seen me in so much pain. And so uh, in, in his mind, he was, his goal was to lighten the mood. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> and what did that look like? That looked like him putting a sombrero on my head. No. <laughs> yes. A sombrero? Oh, um, <laughs> yeah. You, <we're laughs> okay. I wish you could see the producers in the room here with us and he's covering his mouth because he's laughing so hard. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I have Hawks fans. So it was a Seahawks sombrero. It was, it was oh. a terrible choice. <laughs> did you get pictures <laughs> no I would have killed him um which I which I almost did in the moment so I'm pretty sure I looked back at him and I said take this off of me yeah <laughs> and it was all coming from a place of love it was it yes. really was he 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 promised me he was just trying to light the light in the mood because he was just having such a hard time with the situation. Um, it, it didn't, it didn't land well, uh, for me, but, uh, you know, he helped in any way that he could, like, you know, we were on the last leg of, you know, something needs to happen or we need to start making some decisions. And from my standpoint, you know, you can make all the plans in the world. You can get, you can normalize home birth and want to have a, a water birth at home. You can do all of that work and everything can just as easily go out the window. Of course. Yes. <laughs> it's a lesson in like being flexible and resilient and, you know, and everything else, right? Yeah. So we got to the point where it was, it was, you know, this is our last chance. Let's make something happen. So, um, my husband was very helpful in terms of, you know, getting me to do lunges and go up and down stairs, uh, to try and get things moving. And, um, so I, I felt like I was going through a boot camp. Uh, <laughs> I remember hugging trees and going for a walk. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, it was interesting. It was definitely interesting. So I remember um, at my son's birth, like I remember 
my partner being the same way. Like I, we talked about it beforehand and I remember him saying, like I said to him, how are you feeling? Like, you know, we knew the day was coming close. How are you feeling? And he said, I'm really nervous. And I was like, you're nervous, what? And he said, I remember him saying, you know, you're, you've always been a strong woman. I've never seen you in pain not in real pain he says i'm really scared about seeing you in pain i don't know what i'll do and you know like i i, I think some like we can joke about you know how our partners do at these births but really and truly you know they're they're human beings and they're watching the person that they love go through something really really difficult and probably feeling very much out of control over the way that things go i had a whole room full of people it was really something. I did not have a partner, so I was having a child on my own. And my friends were there, and my birth coach was my best friend, and the doctors and nurses, and we had flowers and music, and lots of the nurses would poke their head in because they wanted to see what was going on. Everyone told them that room had such great energy. <laughs> so, but it was a little too long. But you felt supported? Absolutely. Um, it was still terrifying, just yeah. the notion of just the unknownness of it all. And not really, you know, they had me lay down on a bed and you realize later. Did you do that? Where you, you? I certainly did not. The moment anyone <laughs> told me to lay down in a bed, I would get angry. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I, and then they put me on a ball and nope, all I wanted to do was just kind of lean over and, and stand on a wall and but, uh, yeah, laying down was not a thing. Laying down was not a thing. You know, like you had said, w women have been doing this since the dawn of time. But I think the thing that probably is really different today, my instinct is just that we aren't surrounded by community in the same way. We don't have as many people. Well, you, I mean, you did, Yonina, which is fantastic that you had that experience. Um, but, you know, it's it's a lot more isolated and very different, I think, from the way that our Métis grandmothers probably birthed. Colette, I'm curious, do you feel that being Métis impacted your experience in any way? I do. I think it made me, it, it, it made me want to ensure that I had, had the support system around me. I, I did a lot of research leading up to it just around, you know, not necessarily how, how my culture would um, influence uh, the way I, I, I birthed my daughter primarily just because it, everything went out the window there. Yes. Everything changed. My community was my, my midwife and my doula. And then the nurses that ended up tending to me. Um, and then um, my, uh, the doctor who, who eventually did my cesarean. And I was very thankful. I was, I was surrounded by women all the way through every person who, supported me um, in some way or another including your doctor including my doctor why was that important it was important to me because there's there's that relational piece it's hard to talk to a man about your experience when they've never gone through it it's one thing to read a book and and i'm not taking anything away from those who have done that work and live it every day um, but after after having Lily and, and doing my follow-up with the doctor being able to say so this is hard this is hard and yeah I see you it's hard. yeah 
And, and for the doctor to say, yes, it's hard. And this is how it went for me when I had my children. And so just to have that, that understanding that you wouldn't normally have, I, I was so thankful to, to know that I could connect with my midwives on questions. I could connect with my doula. She was checking in on us regularly to see how we were doing, even at the hospital. And, and, and it's one of those things where I'm, I'm thankful that I had, I felt safe enough to identify as Métis at the hospital. Yes. I, and wow. so I'm really, really thankful for that. And what was really lovely was after Lily was born, I was given a, a book and it was called Kisses, but Kisses in Cree. And so it had uh, had the story. Who, who, who? So it was it was part of, of the program at the hospital. They gave oh. us a full package. And, and one of those items was was a, a, a book for Lily. Which... But you nailed it when you said you felt safe enough to identify. And not everybody's in that position where they feel no. safe to identify in a hospital. No, so that's really now. key. Yeah. Even now, some people don't feel safe. Absolutely. Um, so it, yeah, it varies greatly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just curious because we jumped ahead and I'm, I'm not familiar with the story. I know Lisa is. And so we were at home and then now we're at the hospital. What happened? So I had a failure to progress. And so what happened was my midwife had checked me. I wasn't dilating. And because the labor had gone on, I was at home for 17 hours. Um, There was a concern that because of the period of time, that there was a chance that there was um, meconium um, in my fluid. So um, baby poop. For those who baby. don't know, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know. <laughs> baby poop. And, sounds better. Yes, it does sound better. <laughs> um, so it was one of those points where I had to make a decision. They could have broken my water at home. And if there was meconium, I would have had to go to the hospital or we could go to the hospital and they would check me out there. And if there was meconium while well, we were where we needed to be, because meconium will then make things a little bit harder on on baby during labor right so got to the hospital they broke my water lo and behold meconium and and so I was exactly where I needed to be I was actually supposed to be diverted to New Westminster to Royal Columbian Hospital I'm so thankful I didn't be in the back of a car and having the chat contraction terrible thing it is so so terrible so right at the last minute we got diverted back to Ridge Meadows Hospital which is my local hospital and I was so thankful they had no everyone was having a baby on the same day I was so so they had no no nurses to help me but they finally found one and then we were able to go to Ridge Meadows I was uh, so thankful my my nursing team was incredible my midwife stayed with me all the way through my doula stayed with me all the way through and it was it was a mad rush because they had um, the anesthesiologist on the maternity ward right as I got there so they were shoving me full of needles like really quickly which through my research I didn't really want but it was necessary <laughs> Um, and then I was having to go through another fear of mine, which um, was uh, to get an epidural because they needed to induce me to see if I would dilate. 
So I experienced the epidural, which was nothing. But I was <laughs> all this buildup in my head. Level up. Yeah, all this buildup in my head, and the anesthesiologist was like, "Wow, you were totally fine." I'm like, "Well, this is nothing compared to the contraction." So yes. <laughs> so um, and and I was so thankful. My doula held my hand during the whole which again you know you, you think about how, how grateful you are to have some really strong well, she, she was kind of playing the mom role for you there too she, in the absence of really your own was. because of because of the pandemic right she really was and yeah. and was your so, husband there my husband was there he was he was uh honestly the moment they did the uh the epidural it was like he could not be lighted out of that room fast enough <laughs> I, I want to know, did he bring the sombrero to the hospital? That's what I was just going to say. <laughs> no. no. When, I was no when the sombrero happened. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so so then, you know, we went through another eight hours of, of um, attempting to, to induce labor and and get everything going and, and, and nothing was happening. Absolutely nothing was happening. And um, the doctor came into my room and said, okay, so we can continue down this path. It's not, it's not an emergency and there's, there's nothing that's urgent right now. Baby's heart rate's good. Everything seems to be doing okay. But if we continue down this path, there may be a point where it becomes an emergency. Mm -hmm. And so you have the choice. You can go for the cesarean I had never been for a major surgery in my life. Right. So it, right, if we're right. talking about a day of like overcoming multiple fears. <laughs> all in one day. All in one day. I did it. Because you're amazing. That's why. Because you were built for this. You're amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I didn't have a choice. There's <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. Uh, but you know, I, I, I made the choice that I, I didn't want it to be an emergency. I, I wanted to be able to go, uh, go into things and, and know that I was making decisions for myself. I wasn't being forced into a decision. So, and, and aren't we grateful that today there's, you know, there's so many options, there's ways of, of making things safer than there were in the past because you know my story was similar to yours and you know and I have often said you know if, if it had been 150 years later I, I probably wouldn't be here and, and neither would my son so you know like it's it's incredible that there are so many choices and ways of, of doing this safely and yeah I'm so happy that it turned out the way that it did for you Colette. Uh, I am too what was so funny was that everyone thought that because a lot of the issue was the way that Lily was was sitting in in me she she was sunny side up which is a good way to have eggs however not a good way to birth a baby <laughs> so Lily was sunny side up you wanted her flipped the other way therefore because her head wasn't sitting on my cervix in a certain way I wasn't dilating mm -hmm. so everyone was convinced that Lily was a small baby Okay. Small baby, and that is why things were just not progressing. And right. So we get into the um, operating room. They pull Lily out. 
and I have a whopping nine pound baby. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Surprise. But uh, she came, she came through. I had the opportunity to look uh, at her because of the cesarean, because of the meconium, we, there were some breathing issues right. um, after she was born. And, um, and so my husband went to go take care of that and, and did an incredible job. He was very, very scared during the process. And he came and checked in on me as I was recovering. And I'm just like, why are you here? Get back to Lily. I don't, I don't, I don't need you here. Well done, um, Mark. Yes. So following the whole process, there was six weeks where I had no support, where I had no community. It was phone calls. It was photos. And as much as I say, I spent my time researching labor and delivery. I didn't spend as much time on the postpartum aspects of Uh, it. Okay. So learning about, um, and what was really important to me was, was breastfeeding my, my daughter mm. and that was hard. That was I was really- saying, but it's, it's totally natural and really easy, isn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like what? Right. Nobody tells us that. No. It was, nobody told me that. Yeah. It was awful. It was, it was awful. Yeah. <laughs> it was awful for two months for me. Yes. For others, it happens much quicker and it's, you know, and it takes, you know, a, a, a week to get comfortable or, or maybe a little bit longer. For me, it was two months. Well, because it's natural and it's learned. Like yeah. it's natural and the baby learns and mom learns. So, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of work. Yes. So one last question, Colette. Do you think that your Métis culture has or will help to form who Lily is as she grows up or in which in what ways will you include Métis culture in her growing up years? Well, I already am. Lily yeah. loves her sash. She loves yeah. her sash. <laughs> and Lily already has her Métis Nation British Columbia citizenship. And it's incredibly important for me to have Lily experience her culture. She's also incredibly lucky to have Auntie or TT Lisa Aww. who, who uh, outfits her in ribbon skirts and <laughs> beautiful beadwork and baby moccasins. And she, you know, she, she wears it so proudly. I remember sharing a video with Lisa one day where Lily got her jolly jumper and it was so fun. She loves jumping to this day. <laughs> Uh, I put on the Red River jig. Lily was uh, four months. Yes. No, no joke. My four month old at the time was doing the changes with the music. Wow. It, it She really was. I saw the video. I mean, they hear the change in the music and, and yeah. you know, it's, it's there. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was really no, something. It's in her blood. <laughs> it is. It is. It is absolutely in her blood. And so, and you know, I, want Lily to grow up being proud of who she is, proud of her Métis identity. I want Lily to know her language, know her culture, know her community, and to feel like she has a belonging, a place of belonging, that she can be proud of who she is and speak to it. That's, you know, that's what I want to instill in her. And I, I want her to be a strong part of the revitalization of our culture. And I think through, you know, showing her images every night with different books that Lily has access to um, that talk about the Red River Jig and 
Because uh, these are things that we didn't necessarily have when, when we were kids growing up, right? Like even, yeah. even if we grew up knowing our Métis culture, not everybody grew up really feeling like they were immersed in it. But Colette, I'm watching what you're doing with Lily and you're doing a fantastic job. And when she's your age, she will be able to tell the story that she grew up in her culture. And that's incredible. And you know, when we say not all of us did, there's some of us who did have that when we were growing up. So I was six when my great grandfather died and he was a fiddle player. He spoke the language. My grandmother did as well, but she stopped at some point. And so when I heard the music or when I heard the language as an adult, I did not remember those things, but my body did. Mm-hmm. So I would want to go sit on someone's knee uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's, I had sat on my great grandfather's knee. It's really something. So your daughter's very fortunate and to have such a lovely mother. Oh, thank you. I'm so grateful that you came on to be our very first guest on our podcast. Thank you so much. You're helping us to birth our podcast. We oh. the podcast together. Thank you. Oh, thank, oh you. thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so appreciative. And you tell Lily Tsitsi says she loves her. I will. Okay. Thank you so much, Colette. Thank you, Yonina. So that was Colette Trudeau. And our next guest is Dr. Janelle Syring. So in preparation for this podcast, I reached out to Dr. Kate Elliott. She's the director of Women for Métis Nation BC, and she told me about Dr. Syring. And I want you to meet Dr. Syring because she's doing some really interesting work. Dr. Syring is a Métis family doctor based out of Calgary who completed her family medicine training through Indigenous Family Medicine Residency Program. Welcome, Dr. Syring. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, thank you for, so much for having me. So my name is Janelle Syring. And as you mentioned, I currently live in Calgary. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. Thank you. Uh, and you're right, I'm a Métis family physician, and I'm originally out of Treaty 1 territory of the Red River Settlement, also known as Winnipeg. But now I make Treaty 7 um, territory, aka Blackfoot territory, and Métis Nation number 3 of uh, Alberta, my home. And I'm so thrilled to be here. We're so Hello. thrilled to have you here. I'm from Winnipeg as well, born in Portage, the Prairie, Red River Métis. So we share the homeland births. <laughs> then the, the natural question is, where did you go to high school? Yes. Yes, of course. <laughs> well, Charleswood Collegiate. Okay. So I went to Charles- Where were you? Uh, Collegiate louis in St. Boniface. Oh, St. Boniface. That's where all the Métis really were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So you're working in the area of uh, birthing children. And as a Métis doctor, do you feel a sense of responsibility to bring in the Indigenous teachings or Métis teachings to the work that you're doing? Um, I think I need to preface this by saying that when when we're physicians, we get trained in the Western system. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's been an evolution over time where when I started my university career back in 2001, where you keep it a secret, right mm-hmm. now having been a graduate from the indigenous program and i think it also just kind of lines up with historically what's been going on um across turtle island especially with like trc and the calls to action yeah. um the call is getting stronger to start incorporating more traditional um methods and teachings but this is something that 
I definitely have to seek out on my own because this is not something I'm going to find in my medical training. And so thank you for you. doing that. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, there's no path to follow. And mm. it, that's kind of been the Métis way, hasn't it? We're often mm. merging two sets of cultures and ways of being. Mm -hmm. And, and trying them in. Yeah. yeah. If you could wave a magic wand mm -hmm. and incorporate things in a way that, that you feel would really help out Métis women, what, what, would, that, what would it look like? Um, I think one is, well, I think there's so many things that we can do, so I need a lot of uh, wands, but I think we need uh, more Métis healthcare providers, mm -hmm. be it midwives, doulas, physicians, nurse practitioners. And, you know, the idea that like representation matters, but it's kind of hard as Métis people because, you know, we, we are often white passing and I, I am white passing and I sometimes will wait until it feels safe to disclose my indigenous identity. Mm -hmm. So you don't necessarily know who might be in front of you, but it's kind of easy to sniff out after a while. It becomes right. pretty apparent. <laughs> We start to know each other. <laughs> there's tell there's telltale signs. I find it interesting actually that you say that you that you wait to identify because that's something that we've heard from some of our birthing people as well, that they waited to identify until it felt safe. You have to dip your toes into the water first. Mm -hmm. Um until because you have to really get a sense that the people around you um are willing to treat you with dignity and respect when they find out you're an indigenous person in this colonized country that is Canada. Right. Um, but then going back to your magic wand question. So I think having that representation and having people with similar stories and backgrounds uh, to help support us and and to, to encourage and foster more of the traditional ways as well, uh, we can amplify that. Mm -hmm. And I think having access to the resources that people need. So if that means um, having more birth work or support in their community, wherever they may live, or having access to multiple different providers so that there's only not one center, but somewhat something for everybody, right? Because mm -hmm. you're not going to be the right fit for every patient that you see. So, but that's often the case if there's like one clinic, right? Of and course, so you yeah. take what you get. Right. Um, but imagine having, you know, a few in your community. So that way you can develop that relationship with someone that is very meaningful to you. And having access to the resources that you need to be able to parent well, mm -hmm. do it in a good way, um, and having access to the childcare that you need, and and just your your matriarchs and, and the the community support as you um, are pregnant, and then afterwards as well, um, once you've delivered, you know, supporting you if you choose to nurse, all those really important aspects that yes. sometimes get overlooked. Yeah. So in your practice, are you dealing with many Métis women who are birth having babies? <laughs> well, my practice is kind of, I'm bouncing between two uh, provinces right now. Um, so I completed my residency in June, and then I came back to Calgary for uh, a month off just to move my stuff back and to my house with my husband, because he's been back in Calgary while I was in Vancouver. Uh, and then I went back to Vancouver for two months to do a locum. And the practice that I was covering uh, was mostly focused on the downtown east side. Mm. So there's some Métis, a lot more First Nations folks. Um, 
and the work we did at BC Women's um, with group two um, would have some Métis, but not as many as you would find here on the prairies. So now that I'm back in Calgary, I'm just kind of laying down the roots of my practice. Um, and so right now I'm not seeing any Métis patients, but give me a few months. But I'm scheming, <laughs> I've got some meetings after this to get funding <laughs> just so I can start seeing patients. So of course, now me- you know, like all, all Métis listeners that are expecting are going to be searching you out, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I, sh- I would have looked for you. <laughs> <laughs> let me, uh, let me sort things out in Calgary. So we're working on things right now. And, and this week's been really busy with a lot of emails and meetings. So stay tuned. But that's the goal is um, to support my community. Right. That's what- and the things going on there, like it's really regional, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, it, you know, having wor- I've worked in a few provinces because I was a physiotherapist before entering medical school. So I did my training in Manitoba, worked in Ontario and Quebec and then headed out west. Um, for my medical side of things now. And it really, yeah, it really is very regional. Um, it depends on the funding um, of that province mm-hmm. and it depends on who's available to do the work too. Um, so I know here in Calgary, we have this fantastic group of Métis midwives that I've been working with. Um, and it's, you know, on the island, there's, there's groups of people. So it's really like little pockets um, that are, are doing this work. So you kind of have to like sniff them out a little bit and try to find them. I love that it's being done. And would Mm -hmm. funds might be a barrier for some people when we're talking about things like doulas, uh, midwives that you have to pay for? Um, It depends. Mm -hmm. So um, midwives generally are covered by the provincial health insurance program. I did not know Um, that. Yeah. In Alberta, they used to be private pay, actually, but now they become republicly funded. Again, it depends on the funding model that the group of midwives have um, to ensure that it's sustainable. Um, and then doulas, it it depends, again, on funding. So for my tea folks, if they're not living on settlements, it's usually something that you do need to pay out of pocket because uh, we're not covered by non-insured health benefits unless they're in settlements. So um Whereas in, in BC, they have the First Nations Health Authority, which covers First Nations and, and Inuit folk, but not Métis folks. So, right. you know, there's some nuance there in when yes, it comes. Yes, there is. Yeah. And, and oftentimes Métis kind of sometimes fall through the cracks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. In, in a few areas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Forever invisible, right? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, this is why we need to talk about these things. Mm. You shared something with me Um when you and I first talked uh, that I was really surprised to hear, can you comment on the importance of seeing birth happening? You, you talked about how in in some areas they see death, Mm. but they don't see birth. Yeah. Especially like more rural or remote areas where, you know, they'll palliate somebody in that community, Mm -hmm. but when someone has progressed in their pregnancy, um, if there isn't a larger tertiary center, like a hospital nearby that can handle, so have access to an OR, uh, in case, or uh, anesthesia for pain management, then patients will need to, uh, move down to the larger center for a few weeks while they wait to deliver. Um, and, and so I, I saw that in Vancouver 
where we had patients, they were First Nations patients, but from like Bella Bella, Bella Kula at about 35 weeks when they came down to Vancouver. And they were allowed to have one or two support people, um, but then if partners have to go to work, mm-hmm. um, you know, then the partner leaves two days before they end up delivering. Like, really? Even, yeah. Wow. Even the tough. cost of staying somewhere in Vancouver. I know there there's one place I forget the name of it that's housing for people who are visiting someone who's in hospital, but it only yeah. has a few suites in it, and so yeah. it's there's a large cost if you have to pay for a hotel room. Indeed, yeah, and Vancouver is yeah. not a cheap place to get housing. Very expensive. Yeah, I feel like there's just such a, a strong cultural implication on that as well, like having to move away from the community mm-hmm. to do, to give birth you know like it's at a time when you want to be surrounded by mm-hmm. the people that love you and to be like, like I just wonder how many people really truly understand the impact that that would have on on a person you know being pulled mm-hmm. away at such a vulnerable time really I think yeah. more people know now given COVID because there's lots of people that have had mm-hmm. to experience it's the opposite true. end not yeah, birth but death that you normally would have people with you and now people are having to go through that either alone or just with one person in the room. Yeah. When I was this. doing my uh, rural rotation, I was fortunate to actually just be an in Vermeer, just three hours away from Calgary. And that was done very intentionally so I could be near my husband and our dogs. Um, and so we ended up having somebody who, because the uh, in Vermeer is a very small town and it's actually almost like a, um vacation town for calgary that's our closest lake essentially (laughs) so um so you know in the winter months uh it can be quite small and that's kind of like the core community members so people who are pregnant um typically go down to cranbrook which is about 90 minutes down the highway because there is no operating rooms in in there's no surgeons it's it's run by family doctors essentially Mm um and you, you can stay to deliver if your pregnancy has been considered low risk. Um, and you have, if you have something called a proven pelvis, and I don't know if anyone has brought that <laughs> yet today. No. Nobody's brought that up. No. Wow. <laughs> I want to know if I have a proven pelvis. I know mine's unproven. Yours is unproven? Unproven. Huh. <laughs> so I wonder can't... if we get a stamp. Like once it's proven, do they just like put a stamp on? Proven pelvis. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more. So... The idea that like you've been able to successfully pass a, a baby through a vaginal canal oh, okay. uh, means that, okay, your likelihood of doing that again is greater versus the first time where we're like, we have no idea how this is going to go. Right. <laughs> right. And cause the idea of like, sometimes they just that that head, those shoulders are just like too big for what that pelvis can handle. And the, the baby right. gets called obstructed. Right. And they just mm-hmm. get stuck and they stop progressing. They stop dropping down. And then they end up having a C-section because that baby's just not going to go through. <laughs> so you have to essentially have that proven pelvis. So there's somebody who is the first time having a baby and they're a settler. They're, they're non-Indigenous, but, um, and they were a little bit early still, like okay. not, not term yet, but close, but started going into labor. And when we had checked was like progressing well enough that you know, the physician I was working with who loves doing obstetrics said, well, you want to try to have a go at it here? And uh, <laughs> we were like, okay, let's we'll, we'll do this. <laughs> and we were able to deliver that baby. And like, 
the community gets so excited when that happens mm. right right because yeah. otherwise that happens like you know an hour and a half to two hours away so like it brings an energy to the community right. and you know the information just spreads like wildfire so it's it's such an honor and a gift to be able to to be a part of that right and to bring that to the community like it brings a balance right like a balance like if people get to see the whole life cycle not just not just the tough stuff but yeah. something that's so beautiful and special babies mm-hmm. always bring so much joy babies to everyone it's sort of like a puppy yeah. you know <laughs> you just like people get all fuzzy all sort of wiggly inside it's like oh let me have that baby for a minute please yeah. and you just want to have that baby energy hey yeah and we look at our we look at our own connection to things right yeah. our connection within the circle we start to see the world fresh mm-hmm. in a way because that to a young child everything is fresh and yeah mm-hmm. So do you think we can decolonize birth? What would that like what would that be? Like like that's always a big topic, right? And it's and it's big words. But what is that? What would that be? Um I think it's a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little micro but also I think big systemic things. Um so I think decolonizing is is bringing agency and self-determination back to to folks and balancing safety. Right. That's yes. also something that's always in the back of our mind. Right. Mm-hmm. We don't want to have we really want to try to reduce bad outcomes. Right. Yeah. And, you know, being on the provider side of things, we, we do see when things go sideways very quickly. Right. And you want to be able to have access to the tools to be able to support the people that need the support in that moment, be it the, the baby who may need some support with breathing, maybe need to spend some time in the NICU, um, but also the mom as well, if there's like stuff going on. So, um, so, but I think bringing agency back and I think mm-hmm. like bringing indigenous people into the, the circle, like physicians, it's mostly non-indigenous people, right? And they right. reserve a few seats for us um, to get in, to try to like even out the playing field yes. um, as best they can. But like, imagine if, like I mentioned previously, imagine if your entire team was indigenous and like, part of your community as well yeah. right because yeah. i mean turtle island is huge it was so many diverse cultures right and so yeah. but imagine if somebody was a part of your community and understood where you came from and what's important to you mm-hmm. um so i think like those little things um could definitely decolonize yeah um but i think there's like lots of layers to this um, but these are some things that come to my to my mind when you ask me that question. Yeah. And to even create a team like that, um, that many, it's going to take years, right? So this is sort of a capacity building issue where we need to get more people trained that are Indigenous Métis as doctors and nurses. Yeah, like what are the And barriers, that takes right? how long? I mean, that takes quite a while. Yeah, it quite does. Quite a few years. Ten years for a doctor? I'm not sure. I kind of split mine up, right? Because I worked for 10 years before then applying to medical school. But, you know, I, I did six years of undergrad because I also, as a first generation university student, I didn't know what I was doing. I had to really mm. figure out my way and learn mm-hmm. what university was, yeah. <laughs> right? So it took me six years. And then after that, it was five years. And I fast-tracked it in the sense that my medical school was a three-year program versus the traditional four-year programs. And then I did family medicine, which is two years. So already I'm at 11 years, but 
you, you could have somebody you could do it in nine if you're really, really efficient with your time from start mm-hmm. to finish. Does that prepare you to deliver babies or are you prepared for more general things? <laughs> like do you just specialize if you're going to be one delivering uh, babies? So you can deliver babies either as a family doctor. So we're considered more like low risk. So generally healthy people that have relatively uncomplicated uh, pregnancies. But that being said, we, we make exceptions as long as safety again is, is the first thing. Um, and we could also call upon our colleagues like in obstetrics to kind of do shared care um, so that they we kind of tag team and they give us their expertise, but we also develop that relationship and kind of midwives are the same thing. They do very low risk um, and have that option of shared care. And then as, as a family doctor, um, that's something I sought out. So obstetrics and, and um, the care of pregnant people um, is part of our curriculum so that you have a baseline understanding. But if you want to do obstetrical care, then you typically take on a lot more in your residency to prepare yourself for the end. So doing a lot of call shifts, seeing a lot of emergencies, seeing all the things you kind of know how to, to manage when bad things happen in labor. So you can do that in residency and and a lot of people even elect to do extra training after residency, be it three months to a year um, so that they feel prepared for when they, they do start working. And then the obstetrics route, like OBGYNs, they, their training is at least five years out of medical school, but they learned surgery as well, whereas we're not surgeons, we're their assistants mm-hmm. in the operating room. Um, and then they often do like fellowships afterwards as well for like specialized training too. So there's many ways to get there. Is there a push to have more Indigenous folks step into medicine? Is there, is there anything proactively happening to draw more people to that line of... Of career? It's the Indigenous Physicians Association of Canada. Um, so they're a very strong voice. Um, and I want to say, oh, in about like in the 2000s-ish, and I, I want to say especially as the TRC recommendations came out where mm-hmm. calls to action were to have more um, Indigenous people um, as healthcare providers, um, is when they did a lot more work to try to recruit us into medicine. So a lot more mentorship opportunities, um, getting us ready for interviews. Cause it's a, <laughs> there's a lot of barriers that you can imagine. Lots of barriers. Well, well, and, and like a, a lot of us as Métis people, we didn't have people before us that went to university. Like I know for my parents, it was never a thought. It was never a thought that I would go on to university. Did you? No, I went to community college. Yeah, I've and never... even that was such a big deal. Yeah. So like, like, it just seems like an impossible step if I had mm. had, had the inkling to become a, a, a doctor. It would have just yeah. been such an impossible step. Or it would have felt like that. Yeah. And it's the cost. Why, oh, yeah. Well, that's why I'm almost 40 and almost working, right? Um, and the cost, I managed to get my... Uh, line of credit, my med school line of credit down from six figures to five finger figures this week. So, <laughs> oh, congratulations! <laughs> oh, oh my gosh, <laughs> I get nervous just thinking about that. Right? <laughs> Good for you. Do you think if as more Indigenous people step into medicine, do you 
Do you predict a, an increase in the number of midwives? Because I mean, like for our grandmothers, it was midwives that were mm. catching babies, right? And so I just wonder as more indigenous people step into medicine, will more of our birthing people go the route of midwives? Yeah, great. That's a beautiful question. Cause I, I mean, midwifery was like one of the first professions, mm -hmm. right? And that became outlawed. <laughs> <laughs> because colonialism yes. and so now there's that push to bring it back and bring it back for um our for indigenous folks for first nations meeting and meet folks so i think that that push is coming and is happening um but i think also in speaking with some of my metis uh, midwives i think there's lots of work that needs to be done in order for these spaces to feel safe and I think a, a huge piece is that when you're from an underrepresented community, you end up being very tokenized. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. And you end up being the person and the voice and the representative. Um, and that I think exists in a lot of different uh, professions. Absolutely. Um, so that's some of the frustrations and with um, coming into this role. Um, and I think also, um, uh, just the the systemic violence that you experience um, in these settings, right? Again, like not wanting to disclose your identity because mm -hmm. then when you do, then it opens up the opportunity for the discrimination um, or racism to occur. Um, and for example, in, in medicine, they reserve a certain amount of seats for us, like an affirmative action. Um, and a lot of folks firmly believe in the idea of the myth of meritocracy that they've earned that the place to be there. Yes. And so when they find out that we may have gotten in by a affirmative action route, um, you know, myself or my my peers may have experienced comments like, you know, they they hand out admissions to you like candy um, and get treated like second class citizens. Um, mm -hmm. And not really understanding what we have overcome, as we just really mentioned, yeah. to get to this role. <laughs> yeah. And they assume that everything is paid for, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is not true for most of us. Uh, if anybody, I don't know if anybody gets paid for that much education. Yeah, I feel like you have to go through university and you have to work on your studies. And at the same time, you have to work through like this ongoing trauma that just keeps coming at you. And like you mentioned, to you know, being tokenized. And like, I just can imagine that, you know, a, a lot of times people are probably expecting that you have some deep-rooted understanding of traditional ways and and that's not I mean it was assimilated out of us you know like <laughs> like it's that's not necessarily the way that it is just because you're an indigenous person mm -hmm. and as a midwife you, there's the hierarchicalness too right so you would be into the hospital so you've already got one and, and you're a woman and then now you're Métis there might be might be more difficult to speak up and mm -hmm. feel like you can talk to the doctor mm -hmm. in the way that you might want to or need to for the patient. Mm -hmm. Well, the mother, let me call her a mother. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. Um, it's just the, that intersectional identity, hey, and the, the hierarchy and the power structures, they, they are thriving. Yeah. <laughs> going I'm so sorry. I say, so Dr. Siring, is there anything that you would like any people who are expecting to give birth sometime soon, is there anything that you would really like to communicate to them? 
I think that I, my uh, midwifery colleagues and I were just going having coffee yesterday and talking about this and how a lot of the work that's being done is done at a grassroots level um, and bypassing big government and organizations. Um, and so if this is something that you are seeking and you have access to it, I'm wonderful. I'm so thrilled for you um, and use it and you're entitled to it. If you, this is something that you cannot access, I like start asking for it and possibly even having the audacity to demand it. Um, this is your right. And it's part of our uh, path to reconciliation on Turtle Island. Um, and it doesn't have to be huge. It could be very small, but the internet is a trove of information. Um, and a simple Google search could potentially connect you to uh, folks. Um, and I, I think even as Métis people, it gets even a bit trickier for us to access services. So yeah. demand it. Right. It's, yeah. it's your right. Thank you, Dr. Siring. It's been so wonderful to speak to you. And thank you for taking the time to come and, and have our listeners hear what you have to say. I'm so, I'm so glad you. you're doing this work. Thank you. It's just an honor to be here. Thank you, guys. So we want to thank Dr. Siring for sharing such great information with us. And our next and final guest is Carly Hale. Now, I met Carly through one of our Kataeic uh, that I interviewed on episode two of May TV, Marie Bercier. And sitting here with me is Carly Hale and 16 pounds of wiggly, smiley happiness in a sash and little baby moccasins. So Carly, can I ask you to introduce yourselves, please? <laughs> Hi, my name's Carly Hale. Um, I am a registered social worker, but I'm also the acting vice president for the Fraser Valley Métis Association. And this is my three-month-old um, son. His name is Tomas. Um, we picked that name because it uh, has a bit of a French version of Thomas. And uh, we wanted to have a, a little bit of a Métis spin to it. And I'm French Métis, so that's kind of why we incorporated that. <laughs> Welcome to both of you. I'm so glad that he was able to come with you to this. Thank you. I'm smitten. Right? <laughs> yes. I know oh. everybody's going to have to excuse us if our voices do I this. No, we might podcast. talk baby talk a yeah, little bit might. here. And the smile. I wish that people could see the smile. Oh, there you get to hear the sounds. I was hoping for some baby sounds. He's stealing the show. <laughs> yeah, he really is. Yeah. Wow. Carly, did you already always know that you're Métis? I didn't learn until I, it was in the 90s. Um, my mom did a lot of the research um, for the genealogy and found out that we were related to um, Louis Riel. And so she got her Métis card and then um, others in my family started to um, get theirs as well. Um, there was a lot of hiding of our Métis culture. We were, we grew up knowing that we were French um, not really Métis in that sense. So a lot of people kind of denied it and, um, and hid it. And so my grandpa actually came to the West Coast because um, he's originally from St. Boniface and didn't teach any of us anything, our language, um, jigging, spoons or anything like that. He did do some of that when like, you know, Métis parties and things like that. 
my mom just didn't know that that was Métis culture until we went back, I think it was 2018, to meet a lot of her cousins and um, aunts and uncles in Manitoba. And then um, we started jigging in the in the living room and my mom was like oh my dad used to do that and then we brought out the spoons and we went to Fort Gary and we just learned about our culture and um yeah my mom was blown away how much it kind of filtered into her childhood but just couldn't name it my father said the same thing he thought that his mom was speaking in French Mm -hmm. so when I started coming back to him he passed away recently he's about 80 was 85 um when I started bringing the stories to him he realized that actually it was Nachif that they were speaking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's and, very common. Yeah, and they hid like many people. Yeah. And my grandmother as well. So she spoke Nachif up until a certain point and then, yeah. and then stopped when she was a widow. I believe she was more concerned about people looking in on her and her children. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. That's very common as well. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and, but you're very involved in the Métis community. Like you give a lot. You do a lot. Can you tell us about your role in the Métis community? Yeah, so, um, well, it started out a while back on my journey through post-secondary education, and it was kind of finding myself and my place um, as an Indigenous person. And at first, you know, people kept telling me to apply for funding, apply for funding, and I just didn't feel like I deserved it because I wasn't Indigenous enough in the sense. And so... Um, it wasn't until I kind of learned about colonialism and, and whatnot that I just, I realized, no, I, I am impacted by this. It's the reason why I didn't grow up with my culture, right? And so I said, okay, I'm going to apply for some funding, but um, I wanted to give back. That was the condition. And so I applied for my, for the funding. I got it, um, became a social worker because of it. And I used that um, education to started volunteering at the Fraser Valley Métis Association. I started out as their treasurer and then I moved on to the director of culture and engagement. And then now I'm their vice president. So um, yeah, I've been doing lots. Uh, We do community gatherings. We've done the COVID initiatives, whether it's housing or food uh, security and um, rent and um, gas cards and counseling. Um, I'm actually supporting a gentleman um, through the um, justice system, helping him to get his children back, um, offering to do supervised visits um, in a way that's Indigenous friendly. Um, I think that's important because it's not really offered in that sense, that it's like Métis specific. So um, there's a, a lot of things that we've been doing just to make sure that our community's healthy and well. And um, actually just... Um, kind of sparked an initiative by talking with you, Lisa, the other day. Um, When you asked me, well, what type of things have you been doing for culture? Have you read him any stories? And I I wanted to, and I did sign up for the uh, Imagination... Imagination Library? The Imagination Library. That's okay. And I, um, so... I, I haven't read in many of the books, but we have some in our portable and I was thinking, okay, I could borrow them and I could read them to him. But I mean, I feel like very privileged because I have that opportunity. Well, not everyone in our community does. So I talked to Pixie, our president, and we were thinking of actually doing a literacy initiative. We've reached out to uh, the Abbotsford Pediatrics, um, the school districts, Mission in Abbotsford, um, Aldergrove uh, schools, and we're going to purchase um, Indigenous books, uh, specifically the 
Giving Tree Buck oh. for every Métis child from zero to eight. Because we did get $12,000 this year for um, early learning, and we could utilize those funds to make sure that every child in Abbotsford Admission has culture in their home and they can read it. So um, not only the literacy of it and the storytelling, but also it has Michif language in it. So I think that's really important. And I'm also on the hunt for a Métis lullaby that I really want to incorporate within the uh, hospitals because in the pediatrics, soon as they're born, they have a Métis lullaby and a Métis book to read their child. Aww. And so what better way than incorporating our culture from day one with our, our little kiddos here. So... Okay, so everybody that's listening, who do you know right now? Think about who do you know? Who do you know that might know Métis Lullaby? We want to find somebody with a Métis Lullaby. That is our ask. That's what we want right now. Absolutely. And we would love to incorporate that and give it out to our community because I was looking and looking because I want to, I sing to him all the time. He loves it. And I don't have any Métis Lullabies. So, I mean, that's something I'm on the hunt for. So if anyone knows... Please reach out. So I love what you said about you felt that you had a responsibility to give something back. And what I'm hearing here and what you're saying is what I hear from a lot of Métis women is that when they have a baby, they start to just like have this thirst for culture and they start yeah. to like ah! to reach out and to, and to find the culture because they know that they've got this responsibility to raise yeah. this little person to know this, right? Yeah. Yes, I was just going to say that I'm a bit older than the both of you. So uh, my son's 30, and when uh, he was young, there was there was no knowledge around Indigenous, or, pardon me, around the Métis culture in my case, and in the schools and anywhere that he went. So I knew that I was uh, part Indigenous, as we used to say at that time. So he was funneled into all the Indigenous activities. And as I was doing my research, um, he was not interested because he had been down these other avenues and he had decided that he didn't really feel like he belonged there mm-hmm. and I think if it was Métis it might have been different and so when I took him to his first Métis kitchen party and he started seeing the <laughs> jigging and everything when he was in his 20s his eyes lit up <laughs> like oh this is okay this yeah <laughs> so I thought that was pretty wonderful actually just to see the look on his face and the difference like it's as if he knew this is my place yeah and I can tell in your body as you're telling that story, like how happy that makes you. Oh, I was very happy. It made me sad when he didn't want to go and spend time in, with the indi- other Indigenous children in his school. Yeah. And there wasn't many. Yeah. So it would be just one or two of them. And he just didn't want to be one off by himself with um, the rest of the school doing other things, right? Yeah. He did like the pizza, though. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Carly, obviously, I mean, as, as mommy, you give a lot to Tomas. Mm. I'm going to bet he reciprocates in his way. What does he give to you? Mm. (laughs) He gives me a lot of love. He really does. He gives me um, patience (laughs) because I have to a lot of the times. Um, You know, he he does make me and encourage me to want to make sure that I am doing everything in a way that's that is Métis too, because um, I want to embody our value system and pass that on to him. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, if like he, ta- I take him to gatherings and stuff like that. But um, you know, instilling those core values at this age is so important because they stay with you for your whole life, right? And so um, 
you know, with my older son, um, I didn't really know my culture at the time, and I wasn't engaging in it as, as much. And um, so he started learning, I think, when he was around seven, six or seven. And so I want from day one for him to know his culture, know who he is. And because it, it is protective factors, you know, you go to school and a race is common about Indigenous people are made and it's not going to impact him in a negative way about himself. He's not going right. to internalize that because he already has that positive self-identity. Yes. And it's so huge. It's, um, you know, having that understanding of culture and community you know, those are protective factors for mental health and addiction issues later in life. And so um, I, I want to make sure that he has those. Um, I, I want to make sure he knows who he is. And it's so important to me. Um, and yeah, from day one, I, I want him to know that. And I mean, my son, he's uh, blonde hair, blue eyes. He does. <laughs> He doesn't look Indigenous, but I, I tell him, like, you're not part Indigenous. You are 100% Métis. And that yes. is so empowering for, for people to know. Um, I didn't know that. I always used to say, oh, I'm part, part Indigenous. Or you're people part ask, person. Yeah, yeah. Like, isn't that weird? It is weird. And yeah. so um, I tell people, I mean, it's not about blood quantum at all and a lot of people don't know that right and i have people ask me oh how how much are you indigenous i'm like i'm 100 percent and really wow like they're shocked you know yes. and because if you look at me blonde hair blue eyes i don't look indigenous at all but i'm definitely an advocate i like to also um make sure that we're touching base with our first nations cousins and stuff mm -hmm. too and bringing them to the table and understanding that piece as well so you know, when we do go to, for the Fraser Valley Métis Association, when we go to the table for the city of Abbotsford or for um, the hub of Fraser Valley or any kind of um, PCN, primary care network, we're always talking about bringing Inuit and First Nations to the table as well because we are only a little bit of that Indigenous piece, right? We can only talk about being Métis. Yeah. They have a different experience, a different history. Yeah, 100%. You know, and... Yep. And needs to be respected, right? So, yeah, it's it's quite interesting. Yeah. I think often about how much the Inuit are left out, too. And, of course, where we are. and there is, And yet there's plenty of them here. There are. Yeah. You, you wouldn't think so. A lot of people don't even think about it, right? And we've had Inuit people come to our gatherings because there is nothing here. Yeah. It's really sad. And that's how I started was I started just going to the Friendship Center and places, other places, and went to all sorts of Indigenous events, mm -hmm. First Nations events, because I didn't know where to go. I'm from Manitoba originally, and I didn't really even realize how active the Métis Nation was here. And actually, they've become much more active in the last 10 years, providing more and more things. So I started out in the other places, and it just, it, it was wonderful, wonderful experiences, ceremonies, sweats. Yeah. But there's something about being in a room full of Métis. A hundred percent. Yeah, I definitely have always felt connected to the Indigenous culture. But because everything is uh, First Nations based um, within the school districts, um, you know, even at the Friendship Center. And I mean, I, I don't want to knock that or anything, but Métis does have a place, too. And I, I feel like I... I didn't feel completely accepted, just like your son, until I entered the Fraser Valley Métis Association and was around other community members. It was, it was like a family, and I think that's what 
um, I saw more so when I got pregnant and having him was that the community just came together and, you know, when I was feeling sick, brought me food and tried to find out little tricks on how to make sure that I wasn't feeling sick and like, you know, coming to see him and and checking in. And there is just the even getting pregnant and, and getting bigger, you know, um, I gained quite a bit of weight and the the way the Indigenous community embraced me compared to um, settlers or whatever, um, other community members, they it was like, you're beautiful. You're the it's the giver of life. And it was just it was celebrated. Yeah. Whereas I remember getting a lot of comments like, whoa, you gained a lot of weight instead of like, you know, it, it was more of the negative associations to pregnancy rather than oh your body's doing mir- a miracle it's a magical thing right and so um yeah it was it was quite interesting you just to see gave the difference me back a memory listening to you tell that story gave me back a memory i remember when my son i i nursed my son until he was two and a half years old and he kind of decided to stop and i remember being an event in the longhouse i think it was in chilliwack if i'm remembering correctly and he won it, it was time for him to eat he needed to be fed and I remember taking him and like pulling a blanket trying to pull the blanket over top and cover him and a woman who is an indigenous woman who's sitting above me tapped me on the shoulder and she leaned forward and she said you don't need to hide that this is what we do here and you're doing a beautiful job and I just felt like like this incredible sense of just being loved and cared for by by the community and it was such a, a an amazing feeling to know that this thing that's perfectly natural to do was just fully embraced and understood and, and appreciated and, and being, being affirmed as a mother yes. you know so that it's such an important role that you're playing as a mother and, and thank you for doing that and for bringing us that beautiful little boy <laughs> you know it's really true and that our bodies do change and they may not go back and why do they need to go back? Mm-hmm. Like, what is that about? What's that message? And I love, I had to learn to love my body a little bit bigger. Yep. And, uh, yeah. My big complaint is clothing stores. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about yours. We'll talk later. Yes, that's a whole other, that's a whole other podcast. Maybe <laughs> we'll do that another yeah. time. Yeah. So in, in what ways, like, the communities helped you when you were pregnant with Tomas, but they've helped you to celebrate his birth like they've done things to celebrate his arrival into the community haven't they yeah so they uh posted a picture of him on our website um celebrating him as our newest fema member (laughs) um uh, my elder marie she had um actually gifted me these moccasins that you had beaded so um these it's made out of hide that she had um tanned that and when she, I believe when she was in college many years back and she kept scraps of it and she didn't know why but she did and then when I got pregnant she said yes I, I know why I kept those and so she she gave you Lisa the the hide and you beaded them and now he's got these beautiful moccasins that we're gonna pass down to his children and they're gonna just they're gonna stay in our family <laughs> and I know that anybody who's listening and is beating at the same time they're that they're listening are going to instantly make that connection to that being the thread that connects us right like mm-hmm. that through from from Marie tanning the hide to her giving the hide to me to make the moccasins to make for Tomas 
to help him walk through the early years of his life. Like there's just, I there's know. that thread that's connecting us and it's connecting us to a time from before us yes. when that's the way that, that our women in our communities took care of one another and took care of our little ones. Absolutely. I hope the mic caught his response to what you had just said. <laughs> <laughs> it was like he's going, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's agreeing. He's fully agreeing. How lovely. <laughs> oh. And I love his little sash. Yeah, so I was gifted this uh, also when um, I was pregnant because of all the hard work that I'd been doing um, with the COVID relief and, and whatnot. So we brought it home and me and my son, we smudged it and did a, a nice prayer. And and then uh, we had it for him when he arrived. So he's been wearing it to our events. and. Um, as you, I'm pretty sure you saw the YouTube video of him jigging. Oh with, my goodness, uh, yes, melt my heart. Elder Suzanne, yeah. So we were at a groundbreaking ceremony and yeah, we had uh, Suzanne carry him around pretty much the whole time and did a little jig with him. We talk about the drum being like our heartbeat. And I feel like for Métis children, that fiddle is like it's in there as that heartbeat as well. Like we hear that sound and, you know, the little ones, they, they automatically, they move to the, they move to, to the beat. It's natural. Oh. <laughs> I do, I do believe in blood memory too. Yeah. That, yes. You know, we have that memory within us. So when we hear the music, even if we've never heard it before, uh, we really have a, a response to it and the language. Yes. Beautiful. I agree. Yeah, Absolutely. So I have a curious question that um, this might seem out of sync with what we've just been talking about, but I would love to know if you did anything with around the placenta, the umbilical cord. Did you know any of those teachings or did you use any of that type of? No, I, yeah. I didn't. I think um, leading up to um, giving birth and stuff, what I did really want to do was um, I wanted to smudge my the room and I didn't have that option in the hospitals. So um, I gave birth at uh, Langley Memorial and their maternity ward is quite uh, new. And so I had asked if there was a room that I could use to smudge in and I had a C-section. And so um, they said that I had to leave, like actually get out of the hospital type thing and do it outside um, because they just didn't have the capacity. The smoke alarms would go off and stuff. And so, I mean, it, it makes me wonder um, if there was any Indigenous people on the council when they did um, make that maternity ward and yeah. or even First Nations Health Authority or something along those lines. And so um, that's why, I mean, the Fraser Valley Métis Association, we're really big on trying to work with different agencies and stuff just to make sure that Métis people do have a voice and um, maybe they just didn't consider it before. and. Yeah, and I know, um, you know, there are Indigenous birthing centres, like, as we move further east across these lands, but mm -hmm. I don't know that there's an Indigenous birthing centre anywhere near where we are in, in, in British Columbia, not that I know of, um, you know, and probably this time of COVID isn't the right time to ask, but, you know, I kind of feel like, okay, anybody listening, like, we, put, we get us on that list of, like, asks, because that would just be such an amazing thing to have is, is a space where our Indigenous women, because we're out there, you know, could go and, and smudge at this important yeah. time. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. And then there is some other traditions that are local, too, which wouldn't involve smoke. So there's the cedars the rushing with the cedar that's, that's right. true and yeah. of course you'd want to have permission mm -hmm. to use those practices but perhaps that's an option and maybe they even have someone there who could do yes. that for you, you know? yeah. yeah that would be nice to even have someone 
on call that you could potentially use. Yeah. I know they had um, a knowledge share that did the cedar smudging um, or cedar brushing at, um, I think it was St. Mary's Park? St. Mary's, um, sorry, the residential school up at Heritage Park. Right. Um, they had that for when it was September 30th, the uh, Orange Shirt Day. There was a big celebration. We got to Beautiful. join the school district and all the nations there. So, And there's and always the drum or the other sounds, too, that mm-hmm. really can, I believe they kind of can clear the room as well. So I often use rattles or drums. Or... Oh, nice. Yeah. We do have a number of drums in our house. <laughs> I've got a gifted one. My, I made one that I gifted to my son. And then my son made one at our youth camp this year, and he gifted it to this little guy. So oh, that's lovely. We've all got <laughs> drums to play. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm... So I, I have to say, because people can't see this, this human love that's going on between Tomas and Yonina right now, sitting across from each other, making googly eyes, and he's <laughs> smiling away. How important is it for Tomas to be connected to some of the old people in the community? I think it is extremely important. Um, Why? Well, I think it's the generations. Um, they both keep each other healthy. Yes. You know, you, you see the elders just perfect, glow. Perfect sound effect, Tomas. <laughs> they just, they glow when they see him. And it, mm. it's those endorphins in the brain that are triggered when you're you're around a baby. And then he gets to be around all his kookums, right? And so he, he just he gets to learn the knowledge there too, right? And so um, I only know so much about our culture. I'm still learning and I'm gonna be a lifetime learner. Um, So I want him to be around our elders that can teach him too. And then he can teach me as well and his children and it's passing down that knowledge. I think it's it's so important. Um, I think it's what's kept the communities healthy in the the past, right? Is, Is that reciprocal relationship between the babies and and the old ones, right? Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, I know that um, Métis Nation uh, BC has a lot of funding for um, childcare right now. And so it would be really nice. And we've been looking for a space to do our own child, um, Métis specific childcare in Abbotsford is to have that, but then also bring in the elders too. So it, it's the generations there. They all get to, they get both get to learn from each other and, and be there for each other and pass that culture down. So it's just, it's so important. It keeps us healthy. I think not just mentally, but physically. Mm -hmm. I think there's something that happens. You mentioned the endorphins. Yes. Um, There's something that happens when you're around a baby, but also babies know who's a mother. I think they seem to know. They know who's a grandmother, who's a cuckoo. They seem to know who's going to be an auntie. And so it's lovely that it doesn't have to be blood, that it can just be Mm -hmm. in the community. Yeah, and that's such an indigenous way too, because he yeah. gets to learn all the different relationships in his life and how to be an uncle and you know a, yes. a brother and yes. a dad and a you know a, a grandpa. Like there's yeah. just there's all those different relationships and roles that you have as a person yeah. that he gets to learn that all from his community, right and. So that's why it's so important that I bring him to our gatherings um, and that we're still having gatherings, even though it is COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it keeps him healthy. And has any of the community given him a nickname yet? 
Because <laughs> nicknames are very big in our, in our <laughs> communities. Not yet. Not yet. Not still yet. up for grabs. I know. <laughs> so we will see. Oh, wow. I'm getting tired. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that you would like to share that you would like listeners to hear? Because I know you just do so much work in the community and like you've shared some of some of the work that you've done to revitalize culture. Any last words that you just want people to hear? Um, if there are any Métis people out there that want to get to know their culture or they have any children that want to be involved, um, doesn't matter where you are in the, the Fraser Valley or Vancouver, please come and join us at our gatherings, at our events um, with the Fraser Valley Métis Association if you need any support. Um, we have been liaisoning with the the First Nation Health Authority to make sure that Métis people are being addressed. And then we've been also connected with the other chartered communities to make sure that they're connected. So please, please, please reach out to us. Um, you can find our website at fvma.ca and uh, please reach out. And Thomas says that's a wrap. I think, I think, I think he's ready to go. <laughs> thank you so much yes, for thank sharing you both of you. Uh, your time and your baby with no us. Problem. Thomas is beautiful. <laughs> This has been episode one of Beating Together. Thank you to our guests, Colette Trudeau, Dr. Janelle Syring, and Carly Hale, and Tomas. Beating Together is produced and edited by Aaron Dawson. Audio engineer, Matthew Jansen. Our theme music was composed by Métis musician and actress, Alexa Burrard. This podcast is made possible through funding from Métis Nation BC.